Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Let us turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1 until verse 31. Now, please follow along in your Bible or on the screen above. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go through the street of Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And then he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is their Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But but his disciples took him by night 
and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large, ba large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sion. This is our last sermon in our Acts series this calendar year. Starting next week, we go into uh, Advent, the season of Advent. And this year, we're going to, um, for our themes and topics, we're going to follow the themes and topics of each of the Advent candles. Um, the prophets, Max had to remind me in the first service, the prophets, the Bethlehem candle, the shepherds, the angels, and the Christ candle. And we're going to target or focus our sermons, aim them at the kids, okay? So kids, you have that to look forward to starting next week as we launch into the season of Advent, anticipating the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before us today is this account of the conversion of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who goes in the space of just three days from the arch enemy of the church, breathing threats and murder against the church of Jesus Christ, to becoming her greatest ever advocate and promoter in the world, and as a commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ. The, the, the significance of this event, for Paul personally, certainly, but for the church, for the expanding mission of Jesus Christ in the world, and the development of Western civilization and spirituality, and the world as we know it is just due to this man. This is, his significance cannot be overstated or exaggerated. It's a profound impact. No one has worked harder, gone further, done more for the Lord Jesus Christ in the history of the world since Jesus than this man right here. Almost from this point on in the book of Acts, there's a couple more episodes with the Apostle Paul. Apostle Peter, and the conversion of the first Gentiles. But almost from this point on, Paul himself becomes the focus of Luke's account. Luke follows his ministry as he advances out further into the Gentile territories. I said last week in a sermon that Paul is the hero of the rest of this book of Acts. My nephew Ezra came up to me right after the service and says, Uncle Jody, you should rather say that he's like the hero of the rest of the Bible. And that's true. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. There's a profound impact in the shaping of even just the early church situation. He was a real leader. His penetrating insight 
into the mystery of the gospel, his vision for seeing and working out the implications of this gospel for the reorganization of society and life, his incredible tenacity for speaking about Jesus, promoting Jesus and his lordship wherever he went. These things combine in this one man, Saul of Sarsus, as he's converted, made and owned by Jesus Christ, as he's renewed by Jesus Christ. These things combine in him to make him the most influential religious leader of all time, apart from his own Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. But we're first introduced to him in this book as a man who's breathing out threats and violence and murder, completely opposed to the way of Jesus. Young Saul watched over the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. So he was there. And the next verse, the beginning of chapter 8, it says that he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul seized the opportunity afforded him by the death of Stephen to begin, it says in, in chapter 8, verse 3, ravaging the church like a wild beast. He's just hunting them down, ravaging the church. And what does that mean? It means he was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. So Saul becomes the recognized leader of this opposition to this Jesus movement that's getting more and more traction. He's the face of the persecution, the most hostile and determined adversary of this church. And here, again, in in chapter 9, in the first couple of verses, we see Luke says Saul is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, even going as far away as Damascus, which isn't even in Israel. It's It's a city in Syria, 150 miles away from Jerusalem, which is probably like a week's journey, and he's traveling there with letters of like to to hunt down Christians. Probably these are Christians who have fled Jerusalem, and Paul is going to get them back and he's going to put them on trial, and he's going to see that they get what they deserve. And if he can, he's going to get them to blaspheme openly in court, and he's going to have them put to death. That's what he's about, and how intense he is about it. Men and women. And then all of a sudden, as he's nearing the city of Damascus, a flash of light, a voice, a piercing question, three days of blindness and waiting, a word of comfort and commissioning brought to him from a faithful disciple. And Saul emerges on the other side of that, not only a convinced believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a zealous evangelist, aggressive evangelist, and and an apostle extraordinaire, willing to suffer much and overcome much in order to advance the cause of Jesus in this world. He became... Jesus, it says in verse 15 of this passage, Jesus says to Ananias, do this, Ananias, go to this man, he, and he, because he, has, he is my chosen instrument. I choose this man as my special instrument, and I'm going to put him into special service. And what is he going to do? He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the sons of Israel. It's a pretty dramatic moment. Hard to exaggerate the significance of this moment for us even today. To help us appreciate what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus and the fruit that it produced, 
I think it's helpful for us to take a step back from this text a little bit here at the beginning and just try to look at what we know about this man, the Apostle Paul. Who is this man? What is he bringing to this account? Where is he coming from? What's on his mind? How is he approaching his life? And what, so that we can better understand the significance of what Jesus does in turning things around. Who is Saul? Saul was a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew. We've talked about the difference between the, Juda- the Hebrew, Hebraic or Judaic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. He's a Jew from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So he grew up north, a little west of Israel, outside of the kingdom of Israel, in a city called Tarsus. His Hebrew name, because he's born a Hebrew, and to a Hebrew family, his Hebrew name, his birth name, was Saul. It's taken from King Saul, the first king of Israel. And this, there may be something of an unintended irony here in the naming of this child, because King Saul, you'll remember, was super tall, head and shoulders above all the rest in Israel, and very handsome. Saul, not so much, as far as we can tell. Puny little guy. So his, his Roman name, Paulos, from which we get Paul, means little. So he's named after Saul, and he's named after a midget. There's an extra-biblical source that from maybe a little bit later, but reflecting back, possibly has some knowledge, first-hand knowledge of the Apostle Paul, a church father, who, who describes him as this really puny little guy and kind of ugly with a crooked nose and bowed legs. And Paul himself seems to acknowledge in his letter to the Corinthians that, uh, yeah, I don't have a very impressive uh, presence because <laughs> he said he's, he's sort of, he's, He's uh, defending himself against certain accusations, but he's also kind of, I think, acknowledging that there's some validity to them in the process. What he says is, some say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. And Paul's saying, well, just wait till I show up in power. (laughs) If his physical stature is unimpressive, it may be the only thing unimpressive about this man starting with his hometown and where he's born, in Tarsus. It's a significant city in Greek civilization at the time. And Paul acknowledges this. as He, he gives this as a reason why he should be allowed to speak. He says, I'm, I'm a citizen of no insignificant city of Tarsus. It's like Athens is where it's at in Greek civilization and culture and learning and philosophy. This was known as Little Athens, the city of Tarsus. So a very cultured city, a place where a young man like Paul could have his mind expanded, he could, he could uh, get a good education, and it seems like his parents had the means to help him take advantage of this, because everything we can tell about the Apostle Paul is he, he knew his way around the Greek language, he knew his way around Greek uh, poets and writers and authors, he quotes them in his letters, and when he shows up in, um, in Athens and other places, he very naturally, very easily engages persuasively Greek thinkers and Greek-speaking people. So he's obviously been educated and acculturated among the Greeks. And these qualities in the Apostle Paul are no small part of what God, in his conversion, uses and puts to use in service in spreading the gospel. Paul's ability to get on in the world and to know about the world. 
Add to this the fact that he's a Roman citizen. That's a very significant thing to note about the Apostle Paul. Rome ruled the world at this time, the known world, the, the, at least the Israel, Paul's world was ruled by Rome. Even Tarsus and Judea were under Roman occupation, but that does not mean that everybody was a Roman citizen or enjoyed those privileges of citizenship in the Roman Empire. So you could be a subject of Rome, but not a citizen of Rome. Paul, people, people could acquire citizenship with large amounts of money, but Paul had his citizenship from birth. We don't know how his family came about their citizenship, but Paul inherited it as a function of being born into his family. And that was a great advantage to this man. Whenever he was in a number of scrapes, he could play the I'm a Roman citizen card and had certain rights and privileges afforded to him. And he, he didn't hesitate to make use of that. He was a man that could work with his hands. He was a tent maker by training, by profession. Canvas structures of all sorts are very useful and helpful in a hot, arid climate in which he lived. And so we're not talking about tent camping, not camping tents, but tents that are used for uh, workshops and porches and dwellings and all sorts of things. And Paul was skilled in making these kinds of structures, canvas structures, and this was his trade and specialty. And it was a very useful, portable skill. He could move around and enter into that profession where you went with those skills. Maybe it's the computer programming of our day. That's Saul, the man of the world, the cosmopolitan man and his background. But by far, by far, the most important thing to this man, Saul of Tarsus, was his Jewish heritage and upbringing and commitments. By far. He was a very devout Jew. Devout means devoted, zealously devoted Jew. When he's writing to the Philippians in his letter and he's covered of giving his credentials as a Jew among Jews, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Just as, so that means he's born into a faithful Jewish household. From the very beginning of my life, I've been faithful. Even my parents were faithful with me from day one. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So that Benjamin stuck with the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom and stayed faithful to the true worship of God. So that's cred in the Jewish community. That's cred. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, as to the law, a Pharisee, which is the, the earnest precisionistic, conservative group among the people of God at this time, among the Jews. They were careful adherents of God's law. And Paul himself became a student of a very famous teacher of God's law named Gamaliel. We've heard about Gamaliel earlier. He's a member of the council. He's a very famous teacher of the law in Jerusalem at this time. Paul becomes his student. So he, he has this um, as also as a credential his, his studies move him at some point, probably early in his life, to Jerusalem, where he lives and is growing in his knowledge of the law, probably studying and expecting to become a rabbi and a leader among the Jewish uh, religious community. He devoted himself to the knowledge of Scripture and understanding the law and to the Jewish traditions. 
he was very zealous in his pursuit of Judaism. He says in his letter to the Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This is his self-reflection, self-assessment of, what, of this time in his life. I was, I was flying higher than the people around me. I was more extremely zealous for our ancestral way of life, the traditions of our forefathers, and zealous to see them, see them practice faithfully in my own life and in the, the life of others in our community to protect them, to keep them alive. Zeal is one of this man's most notable qualities. It transfers from his old life into his new life and is put to use by the Lord. He has this tenacious, zealous spirit about him. Whatever he's into, he's in all the way. He's a turn it up to 11 kind of a guy. The principal evidence that he gives for his zeal is his persecution of the church. This is like, he's zealous about a lot of things for his ancestral traditions, but the thing that he holds up as the, the, as the crowning achievement and evidence of his own zeal for God is his persecution of the church, which he's, we're reading about him leading in right here. Paul believed that the Jesus movement was the dominant threat to God's true plan and purpose for Israel that was around at that time. This was the great existential threat and crisis to the, our identity as a nation, to, God's, to our hopes as a nation, and to God's purpose and design for our nation. What did he think and believe was God's purpose and design for the Jewish people? Well, to send a Messiah who would liberate the Jews from Gentile rule, so throw off the Romans and all oppression from the Gentiles, restore the Davidic kingdom, reunite the divided kingdom of Israel, give them back their full nation and the, and the, the unity and worship of God together as a people, and subdue the other nations, the Gentile nations, making them turn from their idols to serve the true and living God. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's not far off on the surface from what Jesus, in fact, is doing and what the church also sees as the hope of Israel and what it's seeking to bring about. But under the surface, they're very different things. This was the hope of a good Pharisee. It's very similar, at least on the surface, to the hope of a very good Christian. Well, what's different? A couple of things that are just fundamentally different in the outlook of a Pharisee, Paul, versus a Christian like Peter. The Pharisees could not accept a Messiah who would, first of all, denounce them. No grid for processing that or accepting that. No patience or tolerance for that. A, ma a Messiah who would come into town and say, hypocrite, blind guide, brood of vipers. That's what Jesus said to men like Paul, like his teacher Gamaliel. We're the keepers of the true flame. We've been working our off to pursue the hope of Israel. We've been zealous keepers of the law, scrupulous. We've been 
worshiping in the temple night and day according to the rules and the regulations. What on earth? Exhibit number one, or reason, argument number one, why Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. He takes fault with me. (laughs) Me. I mean, if I'm the standard and I'm failing, everybody's failing, which of course is true. But Paul and the Pharisees cannot accept this, cannot accept it. Second thing they cannot accept about the Messiahship of Jesus, he dies. He suffers and dies. A crucified Messiah for a Pharisee like Saul was a contradiction in terms. In in his eyes, Jesus' death is verification that he's a fraud. I mean, look right there. He died. He failed. He went down. His ship sank. And that is just proof positive, my friends, that that man is not the Messiah. And so they've dealt with the problem, or so they thought. They got rid of Jesus. He died. Verification that he was, in fact, a fraud. And then suddenly... This movement springs up. Word is getting around that he has risen from the dead, that he's alive. People are spreading this news. There is a following. It's getting traction. It's growing into the thousands. It's getting out of town, into other towns and places and other regions. This is the threat to our national identity, to our way of life, to our own leadership. And our leadership and our way of life is essential to God bringing about for us his promises. He, we, if we're, we have to obey him and we have to lead the people in obedience and conformity to his law and to his ways and to our traditions because this is, these are the circumstances under which he's going to bring about the, the kingdom of God on earth. And the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fulfill it for us. This is, this is what's going on in their thinking. This crazy idea that Jesus, this failure, this denouncer of the best people in Israel, uh, is getting around, is getting traction, it has to be put down. Somebody's got to do something about this. This is how Paul's approaching this situation. And he brings to it his zeal, which he sees is in line with a lot of zealous people from the Old Testament who have God's approval and, uh, and who God honors in his word. Phineas. A violent man who puts down disobedience and God honors him for it. And there's others like him in the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, I'm a man for this moment. It's up to me. Uh, We're getting this done. We're putting this crazy sect down. And we're going to restore order and refocus the people of God on where they need to be focused. Now, Jesus predicted that this would be the mindset of people like Paul. He's talking to his disciples before his death in John chapter 16, and he says this to them. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. They're going to kick you out of church. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. They're going to kick you out of church. They're going to kill some of you. And they're going to think to themselves, 
this is what I need to do for God. This is what God requires of me. This is the most honorable, faithful action I can take in service of my King Yahweh. Jesus predicted Paul's mindset coming into Damascus before he even died. So Paul thought he was serving God's interests by zealously persecuting the church. He's a modern-day Phineas. Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, you remember him from an earlier chapter when the apostles were on trial before the council? He had counseled a different policy than this. He had said, let's, let, let's it's live and let live kind of t- uh, policy towards the, the Jesus movement, towards these disciples. Live and let live. We'll just let it play out. It'll take its course. If it's not of God, which we all assume it's not of God, if it's not of God, it will not last. No movement has been able to, to continue long. None of these reform movements, none of these zealots have been able to get much traction for very long. They've all died out, and it comes of nothing. If it is of God, well, then we can't do anything about it. And we might even find that we're fighting against God. So let's just live and let live. And that was the policy until the death of Stephen, when they couldn't take it anymore, and they just basically had a riot and a fit of rage and killed the man. And Paul liked that. That's his style. That's, his, that's the zeal he thinks is actually faithful. So he disagrees with his teacher in this respect. But what did Saul discover on the road to Damascus? He's getting close to the city. What does he, in this incredible encounter, what does he discover? The risen and glorified Son of God appears to him, interrupts him, gets in his face. Jesus himself. This is the last bodily appearance of the risen Lord Jesus Christ on earth. He comes back for one last appearance. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, he's talking about the resurrection, he's talking about Jesus' physical appearances over the course between his, de- between his resurrection and his ascension. And he says he appears to a couple of disciples, he appears to Peter, he appears at one time to 500 people while they're gathered. And then, last of all, he appears to me as to one untimely born. I came along late, and Jesus appears also to me. This is that appearance of Jesus Christ to Paul. Saul is knocked to the ground by the power of the Lord's presence. He hears a voice. The voice asks a question. Very simple question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whoa. I, okay, can you enter in? Can you imagine yourself being Saul? And what, what is going on in your mind? What's happening to you? Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't have an answer. 
He does need to know who is asking the question. <laughs> he seems to clearly know that this is divine. He uses the word Lord. Who are you, Lord? And the voice responds, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Whoa! Whoa! If you just take all the assumptions that Paul's coming to this encounter with, and you take those words and that presence and those answers, that very, very brief exchange, and you just have to realize the incredible impact, the world reorganizational thing that's going on in Paul's heart and mind. It's just... This is inescapable. This is the Lord Jesus. He is alive. He is who he says he was, or people that I've heard about him. He can do whatever he wants to do. He, I, he sees him in his glory. I've been at war with him thinking I was obeying God. This is a cataclysmic, complete world reordering moment in the apostle, for the Apostle Paul. The spiritual veil over his eyes is ripped off. The self, his self-deception is yanked away, taken from him. He's completely naked and exposed to the Lord. And it's personal. Why are you persecuting me? He's just been ushered into reality. And now he's living in a world where Jesus is alive, he is who he says he was, and he has absolute power and authority at his command. And Paul has been awakened. I mean, what, okay, what is Jesus doing? If you were a preacher, and if Jesus was the preacher, what is Jesus preaching to Paul here? Is he preaching the gospel, or is he preaching the law? He's preaching the law in a very personal, like, I'm God, you are offending me. You are persecuting me. You are spewing hatred and murder at Christians, and that is at me. And there's a, a beautiful thing there about Jesus' identification with his people. Whatever happens to them, happens to him, and he takes it personally. He is the head of the body of, G of Christ. And whatever happens to the finger, or the eye, or the cheek, or the knee, or the ankle, happens to Jesus Christ. And he takes it personally. That is absolutely beautiful. But Paul is confronted with his guilt, with his sin. This is an accusation. It is the weight, has the crushing weight of all the weight of the law on its shoulders. There's also something else that's true about this situation here. If you just enter into the moment, you're Paul. Jesus has pronounced your guilt. 
and it's intensely personal and escape, you know, here he is in his glory and all of the way, you know, when people see even the angels who have stood for a while in the glory, in the presence of God and radiate and image his glory, they fall down in fear. Saul falls down, he's knocked down to the ground. He, like, I, like Isaiah, who has the vision of God on his throne and immediately he comes under the conviction of his sin. This is Paul under the, I mean, crushing weight of his guilt before God. He's also not dead. So that has to mean something. (laughs) He's speaking to me. And he's saying, now get up and go into town and I'll tell you what you must do. So I don't know, Paul, if you're Paul at this moment, you don't know what's going to come. You don't know what's, if there's a sword hanging over your neck still or what, but there is some reprieve, some hope. There's, there's something about this situation that it's, it's not immediately over. I'm not zapped. I'm not crushed. I'm not killed. He has a purpose for me. And that's significant. Paul has been spared. He's been, he's been, he's been, his sin has been opened up to him. He has been, he, he has been accused, but he has also not been judged. And that has to mean something. Why has he been spared? He has three anxious days to think about it. <laughs> and how does he spend the days? In fasting and in prayer. If you look at verse 9 and verse 11, you see both of those things he's engaged in. He certainly has to be working. He's a smart, he knows the scriptures. He has to be working out the implications of all this for his theology. It's a complete reordering of his understanding of God and the nature of things. That's partly what he's got to be doing. Um, Some real quick theology reworking. But also, Undoubtedly, he's confessing his sins to God, crying out for mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But he has been spared, and he's going to find out real soon what it means. Now, there's something here for us, I think, to learn about the nature of conversion. There's lots of, actually, lessons about conversion. This is one of the, uh, Richard leans up, to me as we're, as Sion is reading the scriptures and he says, what did you say, Richard? That is like ground zero. What did you say? The greatest passage in the New Testament for the doctrine of irresistible grace. No, it's the Calvinist church. We can talk about that. irresistible grace how irresistible (laughs) i mean jesus owns him he's got him paul knows there's no escaping this now there's no running away from this this is the new reality he knows everything about me he pronounces down to down to the depths of me my guilt and i'm not dead So I'm his. And I think there's something really powerful about that. 
that is in, important to us in our understanding of the doctrine and the nature of true conversion. Okay? Conversion is this change and transformation where we're an enemy of God, now we're a friend of God. We were um, his children of wrath, and now we're his adopted son and daughter. And what happens inside us, in our mind and in our thinking, where that comes to a reality and feels and thinks like something different is what we, is what we mean when we talk about conversion, that change of heart and mind that God's Spirit brings about through the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel combined. This is a difficult thing I'm going to read to you. Difficult because it's old speak. Oh no, I lost my place. Here it is. Ah! It's from a, a book called Revival and Revivalism. It's by a man, an author named Ian Murray. And he started, a, helped start, um, he popularized the Puritans by being a part of the Banner of Truth publishing um, organization. It got started out of, I think, if I understand right, Martin Lloyd-Jones' church in England. So Ian Murray was a young man helping start this renew, renewed interest in the Puritans and getting their writings back into print. And all along, he's been a student of revival. He believes in revival. He believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a Book of Acts kind of man. But he's also, in his studies of the history of revival, a critique, a critic of things that aren't true, things that are uh, uh, caricatures of revival or parodies of it or false revivals. And there's been a lot of that. And even in the midst of true revival, there can be false things that are happening, and so it's difficult to sort through. And we lived through a, a couple of great revivals in the history of our country, the First and Second Great Awakenings. And in this book, he's mostly talking about the Second Great Awakening, which had more of the bad fruit, more of the bad qualities than the first one. And so the people, he's quoting people, good pastors who are trying to sort through. People are being converted right and left, but the fruit doesn't remain. And so what's going on? What, is, what makes for a true conversion? What makes for a false conversion? People are wrestling with this question. And he, in a chapter in this book, Revival and Revivalism, uh, the chapter's called Five Leaders in the Northeast. He quotes a pastor who has made a statement about the nature and the distinction between a true and a false hope. Buckle up. The manner in which people obtain a false hope is generally this. So you want to have, a, have a, a false conversion, here's how, you, here's how gen, people generally come about that. They first believe that God is reconciled to them, and then they are reconciled to him on that account. So they hear the preaching of God's mercy and favor and kindness in Jesus Christ, and they think, there's hope for me. God loves me. He loves me. But if they hear, he loves me not, that is, if they hear his law, let me go on, I'll, I'll put it in his words. But if they thought that God was still displeased with and determined to punish them, they would find their enmity with him, their separation from him, revive, come back. So they'd be ping-ponging back and forth between God's mercy and kindness and God's displeasure with their sin, which the law makes clear. That's a false hope, says this man. On the contrary, 
the Christian is reconciled because he sees the holiness of the law which he has broken and God's justice in punishing him. He takes part with God against himself, cordially submits to him, and this when he expects condemnation. He is reconciled. He is reconciled because he is pleased with the character of God. The false convert, because he hopes God is pleased with him. And what happened to Paul is he, he, he came face to face with irresistible grace. That's true. It was gracious and kind of Jesus to point out his sin and to confront him. Jesus himself, the lawgiver, came down from heaven and put the weight of the law on his shoulders. And he said, get up and go into town. I'm going to tell you what comes next. And this is what happens to Paul. I think it's hard to explain, but a good analogy from literature is in Les Miserables. And early on in the story, there's this uh, Jean Valjean goes to the priest's house. And the priest is very gracious and hospitable and kind to him. And the scoundrel gets up in the night and steals the priest's silver and runs off. And the, the soldiers bring him back to the house and say, knock on the door, and Mr. Priest, uh, we found your silver with this man. We believe it belongs to you. Clearly he's stolen it. And his, what's the priest's response? Jean Valjean, my dear man. I mean, this is, I don't remember it exactly, but basically this is the spirit of it. My dear man, I, you forgot, you forgot to grab, was it the candlesticks or something like that? Here, Oh, thank you, officers, for bringing him back because I, he ran off without the candlesticks. Jean Valjean, you idiot! <laughs> Here, and then, now Jean Valjean, I own you. You're mine. <laughs> God owns you. Now you go and be a good man. No more of this, Jean Valjean. <laughs> Very, it's a little picture, I think, of what Jesus himself does with Paul. Paul, the law. There's no surviving this. You're dead. Now, get up. <laughs> You're mine. Let's get to work. I own you. My grace owns you. I have shown you mercy, and you're mine forever. But that has to come from these three days of, of, of what, what's coming, of what becomes of me. He's anxious, he's praying, he's fasting, he's waiting on a word from the Lord. The first word that comes to him is what? You see it? It's just beautiful. Brother Saul. That took a lot of something, something special, some special faith and love on the part of Ananias. Brother Saul. What a sweet kindness from God to that man. What a, what, a, what a word of assurance and blessing to him. Comfort. 
to be a Christian, you have to have... There's a lot about the Apostle Paul's experience here that is extraordinary and is not going to be anything like your experience. No flashing lights, more, more than likely. No physical appearance of the Lord Jesus in your face. No scales, physical scales falling off your eyes on the laying on of hands. These things are pretty unique. So we've talked a little bit about what's normative and what's, what's the other word? descriptive, prescriptive and descriptive in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's hard to say, but there's a lot of circumstances on the surface, a lot of the miraculous things attending Paul's conversion that are not going to be our experience. And then there's a lot about our individual experiences that differ from one another. God deals with each of us in his own way, in his own time. Each of us has an incredible story, if we belong to him, of how he has accomplished these very things that happened here for Paul in our lives. But under the surface, there's something very common going on with all of us who truly believe and are converted to the Lord. And that is, we've come to the end of ourselves. God has kindly in his mercy shown us our sin. And he's given us faith to put our head on the chopping block of his law and say, you're right. I deserve that. Oh, God, I deserve that. And though you, I don't know what's going to come of me, but though you kill me, yet I will serve you. That's the heart and the spirit of a converted person who loves the Lord and his full character. Have you had that experience? Not Paul's experience, but can you think to the time, place, the season of your life when God got in your face, interrupted your life, called you to himself? I can think of it. I think I told you about this a few weeks ago, but I remember in a car, friend, not even a godly person, says to me, Jody, you're not an honest person. And th that was it. That was my, that was God's version, Jody's version of, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> your sin. This is your sin. Interestingly enough, you know what Paul says when he talks about the law and the, what it exposed in himself? Covetousness was his sin when he thought about it and reflected on the ministry of the law and what it exposed in about his heart and his, his baseline besetting sin, he mentions covetousness as his basic problem. What's your problem? Have you come to see it? Have you accepted God's, Christ's articulation of your sin and, the, and his the just judgment that it deserves. If you haven't, then I don't care how much gospel preaching you think you've heard. You don't know the gospel. Because the gospel is an answer to a problem. And that's the problem. You deserve death. And why does God give... 
Why does he save Saul of Tarsus? We'll end with this. Why does God save Saul of Tarsus? What's in it for Jesus? What's in it for Jesus? Maybe that seems like a strange question to ask. What's in it for Jesus? Why is he bothering with this man, Saul of Tarsus? Does he need something from Paul that he can't get from any other man? Well, on the one hand, there does seem like if you're looking for a man to take the gospel into all of the world, and he's got the credentials for that, and the cultural knowledge, and the knowledge of languages that are necessary to get the word out, if you've got the tenacity of character that the Apostle Paul, if you're looking for the certain qualifications in a man to take the gospel into the nations, he meets, he checks the boxes. Plus his Jewish background, because this is a Jewish-based gospel. It flows out of a long history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God's work in Israel. He knows all that. He's an expert in the law. But is that why God chose Jesus? No, Jesus chose Paul. What does Paul say was his qualification? The reason that God saved him. We'll end with this. He tells us in his first letter, to Timothy. Chapter 1, starting in verse 16, he says this, Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, I hope you believe it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that amazing? He's not thinking about his Greek skills. He's not thinking about his reasoning skills. He's not thinking about his numchuck skills. He's thinking about, I'm the worst. That's my qualification. That's, that's why I am what I am. There's no other reason than that. I'm the worst sinner. Everyone knows it. I'm notoriously bad. And so God chose me so that every one of us here could come to believe that if God can save that man, he can save me. If he can change his heart, he can change my heart, my loved one's heart, my professor, God-hating professor's heart. He can change anybody he chooses to change. If he can put a man like Paul into service, he can put a man or a woman like you or me into service. God can do whatever he wants to do. And so, brothers and sisters, men and women and children, what are you going to do about it? Jesus is alive. Jesus is king. You deserve death at his hand. You know how he, he's described in Revelation as coming back and filling the world so deep with blood of the disobedient and the wicked, that your blood deserves to be mingled there. 
And if it's not, bless his name. Turn to him. Love him. Sue him for peace. It says in Psalm 2, kiss the son while he is near, while he's in the way, because his wrath will soon be kindled. Look to Jesus Christ. Submit to his condem- the condemnation of his law and, and listen to him then say, get up, go into town. I'll show you what comes next. Heavenly Father, I do pray for all of the hearts here that you would work upon them and that you would, for those who do not know you, that they would wake up and realize their predicament and would humble themselves before you and seek you and plead with you for mercy. And find that you are merciful. You say you will not cast out those who come to you. This is the way of coming. This is what it looks like. Oh Lord, give grace to us today. Those who do know you, Lord, and have experienced this. Help us, Father, not to be proud, to take you for granted. Help us to maintain a a tender conscience before you. And to, to live out of our like Paul did, live out of our knowledge of ourselves and of the mercy that we depend upon from you and the grace which we have, which is undeserved. Would you fill us with the knowledge of these things today and minister to our minds and hearts as you know we need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.